morning and welcome to the debrief. It is a busy Monday morning. We have a lot to get to. The very latest with Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, whether or not he will resign President Trump, the State of the Union happening tomorrow, and a potential verdict in the case of El Chapo. All that and more coming up, but first, here are your headlines. Five people are dead after a small plane crash in Southern California. The NTSB is joining the investigation after a twin-engine Cessna hit a home in Yorba Linda. I saw two fireballs and the plane was just falling out of the sky. And by the time we got up here, we saw this devastation in the neighborhood. One person on the plane died and four on the ground were killed. Two more are hurt. It's a historic visit by Pope Francis. He's in the United Arab Emirates for a three-day trip. Francis is the first pontiff to visit an Arab Gulf state. He's hoping to improve relations with the Muslim world. The measles outbreak in Washington state continues to grow. 48 cases are now confirmed, almost all among kids who were never vaccinated. And we're going to start you off with the big story everyone is talking about today. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. And the question about whether or not he will resign after those racist photos appeared of somebody in blackface standing next to a KKK Klan's member. Northam originally said that he was in that photo and apologized over the weekend. He said that it wasn't him. And now it looks like he may, in fact, turn around and resign. That is the big question today. He had said he wasn't going to, but again, he has changed his mind on several things in the last several hours uh, as this case has continued. And somebody who has been there at the center of it all asking tough questions of the governor, Zachary <coughs> Keish. I bring you in now, Zachary. Tell us, what is the chance that Governor Northam will now resign? Well, certainly. Well, first of all, good morning to you. Certainly there is a chance that he could resign. Uh, our, one of our affiliates here is reporting that he is open to the idea, but hasn't made any determination yet. We do know that the governor was meeting with some high-level staffers last night. He also had a cabinet meeting this morning at about 9 o'clock. Again, we haven't heard uh, that any determination has been made in term in terms of uh, whether or not he will resign at this point in time. But I just want to kind of back up and give you guys a timeline of how this whole thing played out. Obviously, Friday, this photo emerged. Uh, it shows two gentlemen, uh, what appeared to be two gentlemen, two people, certainly, one in blackface, one in KKK garb. Uh, just to preface where this was found, this was in a yearbook, uh, a yearbook of Governor Northam's from med school. Um, this wasn't just in any old page. This was in a section uh, that, that, that was his, right? So, think about this in terms of like a particular class or group might have their own page where you select your own photos, your own quotes, a little bit of background about yourself, a way to represent yourself. This was found along with a collection of other photos and quotes. And initially, the governor said, uh, I own this. this. I acknowledge that this is wrong. He took accountability. He appeared to, to, to really try to um, take some ownership, as I said, and get out of, uh, ahead of this. But um, the big question then on Friday night was, which one is he? 
right? Which one is he? If he's acknowledging that he's in this photo, which one is he? And then we began to hear on Saturday morning uh, that he was doing an about face from that. We heard that he was now saying uh, that after close consideration, um, he had come to the determination that it was not him. There was a press conference at the uh, governor's mansion just behind me here. It was an unbelievable scene, a packed room. We're going to hear some sound from that in his explanation of how he came to the determination that this was not him. I was appalled that they appeared on my page, but I believe then and now that I am not either of the people in that photo. He went on to, again, try to provide some perspective, right? It was almost like the process of elimination, right? He had gathered with these uh, friends and family. He had made some calls to, to former classmates. He had come to the determination that it wasn't him. And part of the way that he came to this determination, part of this narrative or storyline that he provided was that he had, in fact, worn blackface. And it wasn't on this occasion. He wore blackface as part of a dress-up. Uh, it was a Michael Jackson competition. It happened in San Antonio, Texas. It coincidentally uh, was about the same time frame of his life. Um, and so he's giving this explanation, and a reporter asked a question that almost seemed out of line at the time, right? Can you still do the moonwalk? Right? He's talking about the glove and the shoes and the uh, shoe polish that he put on his face. And so this reporter asked the question, and it was fascinating because the governor appeared uh, to consider actually doing the moonwalk. He, he, he looked at the space in front of the podium. Uh, we were stunned in the room. Um, and then he looked at his, uh, his wife. We're going we're gonna to go to that sound now. I uh, dressed up uh, in a... Uh, um, what's his name? The singer? Michael Jackson, excuse me. That's why I had Pam with me. Um, I had uh, the shoes, I had a, a glove, uh, and I used just a little bit of shoe polish to put under my, or on my cheeks. And the reason I used a very little bit is because I don't know if anybody's ever tried that, but you cannot get shoe polish off. But, but it was, a, it was a, a dance contest. I had always liked Michael Jackson. Uh, I actually won the contest because I had learned how to do the moonwalk. He then looks at his wife and, of course, she waves him off, says it's inappropriate. Uh, I asked a series of questions in that room, um, and one of my questions was a question that uh, I've heard asked so many times. Should you be concerned uh, that you don't know that blackface is wrong, that you, you didn't have a general sense uh, that this was the wrong thing to do? You got to keep in mind that part of the explanation on, on Saturday, part of what we heard from the governor is that he had an extraordinary kind of understanding of race and people who are differently than, different than him because of his unique life experience. Let's, let's go to that soundbite. Do you think as a grown adult that it's problematic that you need to have it explained to you that blackface is offensive? No, I, you know, I'm not a person of color. And, and people of color uh, experience different things. Uh, it affects them different ways. Now, Zach, you heard the, the governor there talking about how difficult it was to, to um, get that blackface uh, on and, and take the shoe polish off. Did you get, and, and even with that joke about uh, whether or not he could still moonwalk and him almost appearing like he was going to do it, did you get the sense as an African-American man questioning the governor in that moment that 
he still didn't fully understand why people were outraged about this. Well, Lana, I mean, it, it's clear that he doesn't fully understand the, the weight of this. Um, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people, um, a, a lot of people have turned their back on him, right? A lot of people in the Democratic Party. And he was once viewed as somebody who was uh, kind of a rising star. Even Obama uh, co-signed for him and supported him. Uh, I, I'm reminded of, a, of, of something that Obama said during his presidency to the effect of when it comes to race and talking about race uh, in this country, that, that we're cowards, that we don't want to talk about it. I think uh, the important thing to look at with this particular story is context. This isn't about me as a black man or, 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 or anybody else individually. It's about the conversations that we're willing to have about race in this country. And of course, the governor is a lightning rod, right? He, he has become uh, an outlet for, for, for the hurt and the pain uh, that so many people have in this country as it relates to race. But you got to keep in mind that uh, progress never seems fast enough, certainly for those of us who stand to, to, to benefit uh, from the progress. But there has been incredible strides made in this country as it relates to race over the last 50 or 60 years. And, and I'm here to say that the governor is not alone in terms of the, the maturation or the growth or the growth that you'd hope uh, as it as it relates to race in this country. It's, 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 it's one thing to have uh, these photos uh, published in a book, um, and it's another to hold those feelings in your head or your heart. But we really need to use this as an opportunity, I believe, in this country to really confront race in a real way, because at the end of the day, whether the governor stays in office or resigns, unless we are willing to confront race and to address these deep-seated issues, it really won't have a big impact on Virginians or the country as a whole. Zachary Keish, excellent reporting out there. You're so right. <clears throat> Valuable conversations, <throat> tough conversations, <clears throat> but ones that help bend us towards justice. Thank you so much. Now we're going to move on to our next story. The White House, all that's happening there with the Mueller report, the State of the Union happening tomorrow in question still about the government shutdown. That could happen. And so I bring in my friend Stephanie Ramos. Stephanie, what's the latest there? Hey there, Lana. So the president's latest comments about special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation is getting a lot of traction today, mainly because he talked about it again over the weekend in a pre-Super Bowl interview. The president saying that it is totally up to the Department of Justice to release that report once special counsel Robert, Robert Mueller is done with the investigation. Now, really, the president is putting it to the acting attorney general, Matthew Whitaker, who has also kind of put that off, not really answered whether or not he'd re he'd release that report, which leaves it now in the hands of acting attorney general or attorney general nominee, rather, William Barr. So he also has not committed to releasing that report. Why? Well, because there is a conflict. Uh, there's a real conflict between the public's right to know about the Russia investigation and the laws around grand jury secrecy. So it's still unclear if we'll ever see that report. Uh, but let's take a listen to that exchange between the president and that uh, journalist there over the weekend talking about special counsel's Robert Mueller's investigation. Would you make the Mueller report public because you say there's nothing in there? It's totally Congress up can to the attorney general. It anyway, though. Totally up to the attorney general. But what do you want general. them to do? Even the Mueller report said it had nothing to do with the campaign. Uh, when you look at some of the people and the events, it had nothing to do. You wouldn't have a problem if Excuse it became me. public. Excuse me. No, it's up to the attorney general. I don't know. It depends. I have no idea what it's going to say. Okay. So far, this thing's been a total witch hunt, and it doesn't implicate me in any way. There was no collusion. There was no obstruction. There was no nothing. Doesn't implicate me in any way. But I think it's a disgrace. 
was a decision by Ken the president. Starr. The president made similar comments to the Daily Caller last week. So this isn't anything new, but uh, he did say that it's been two years, so maybe it is time for the report to be wrapped up. But Congress could play a role in this and mandate that it is released. Or again, we may never see that report. Lana. Now, obviously, Stephanie and I talk politics a lot there <laughs> in Washington, and, uh, and so we're excited to do so again today. Um, let's move away from that for just one second. The president also in that interview um, had something to say about football and his son. Can you tell us about it, Stephanie? Yes. So the president saying that it's a, it's a really tough game and that he would not consider having his son, Barron, uh, play football. He called it dangerous, saying it's really tough. He says the, the equipment, the helmets, they, of course, have improved over the years, but he's still hesitant. Now, we know, of course, the president hasn't had the best relationship with the NFL recently in the, this last year, of course, uh, once players started taking a knee, protesting civil injustices. But uh, his comments over the weekend really also getting some traction, especially on the day of, uh, of Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, but the president saying, you know, he, his son is into soccer. He's going to let him play soccer. If he wanted to put on the pads to play football, maybe okay, but calling the game dangerous. So interesting that he would say that, especially since on the campaign trail, we heard the president so often say that football in America has become soft like our country. Stephanie Ramos, thank you so much for reporting from the White House. We're going to go now to uh, Venezuela, the very latest happening there. Uh, Cody Waddell, can you tell us about whether or not it looks like Maduro is, uh, is going to change course or if he's going to continue uh, to dig in and the very latest coming from the military generals, which we understand are absolutely essential in this power struggle that's happening there? Well, for now, Nicolas Maduro showing no signs of backing down here. He continues to dig in. The question is, when will he not have a choice and when will the military uh, force him to sort of give in? As you mentioned, over the weekend, we once again saw tens of thousands of people in the streets uh, protesting Maduro. They filled several city blocks. And I was uh, on the streets in 2017 when we saw the last major protests here. And the difference between these two protest movements in 2017, we felt on the streets uh, a sense of uh, uncertainty. People didn't know what would happen. But this year, there's really a uh, an upbeat atmosphere, almost a festive atmosphere. Uh, people are excited because they feel like uh, this is already over, like Maduro's days really are limited. I spoke to several people who said, uh, you know, he has a few months here and people feel like for the first time, uh, Nicolas Maduro doesn't have a, have a way to hang on. We once again, once again saw more uh, defections over the weekend, major defections, a top military general here inside the country defected from Maduro, posting an online video saying uh, that 90% of the country is not with the, quote, dictator, as he put it. Then we saw the country's ambassador. I think we've lost Corey. Uh, I'm Cody, sorry about that. Of course, he's he is reporting live from Venezuela there in Caracas. Uh, we'll see if we can get back to him, but if not, want to offer him our thanks. And we'll continue to watch that entire situation. Now up to another big story here, the very latest in the El Chapo uh, trial. Aaron Katursky following all of that. And we understand that the El Chapo jury is deliberating now. Aaron, what can you tell us? They're about to get the case, Lana. The judge is giving them final instructions. And after a trial that has spanned several months. It's going to be up to the seven women and five men in Brooklyn Federal Court to decide the fate of the world's most notorious drug lord. There is no bigger criminal 
in modern times, uh, DEA agents have told me, Lana, than Joaquin Guzman, just based on the sheer number of deaths they attribute to the drugs that he's said to have flooded the country with. And, and that includes Osama bin Laden or, or any you know, modern-day gangster. El Chapo, they say, is number one. And over the last several months, federal prosecutors have set out to prove it. And the jury has heard from more than 50 prosecution witnesses. They have heard, crucially, El Chapo in his own words bragging about his offenses and, and, and even about the brutality that's been associated with the Sinaloa cartel under his control. Aaron, what is it about this case that so has that has so captured everyone's interest? Why? Tell us some of the things that, uh, for somebody who's just tuning in right now, um, the highlights. I, I, there were some really terrible charges leveled against El Chapo. Well, the, the charges broadly are, are that he ran this vast conspiracy to flood the United States with drugs, but the underlying crimes include murder and kidnapping and torture. And the testimony has been anything but boring. It includes naked, narrow escapes through underground tunnels. It includes spying on mistresses and girlfriends and, uh, and, and even his wife. It includes uh, a, a, a boastful El Chapo talking about plastic surgery, uh, about the, the sex that he's had with women. And it has also included the rather novel ideas that he came up with to squirrel drugs into this country. We think of it as almost quaint now, but before El Chapo, there were no plastic bananas filled with cocaine or jalapeno cans filled with drugs that were being imported into the United States. Those were all his invention. And in the, the last part of his life running the Sinaloa cartel, that's when the DEA says he rather uh, insidiously enabled fentanyl to come into the United States because he figured out how to hook up with chemists in China, get the raw materials to Mexico, and then from there into the U.S. Really, when you read these details and hear about it, it sounds like a fiction writer. Like it's, it's something that you could tune into on Netflix, perhaps. But uh, it seems like a slam dunk for the prosecution. Aaron, any sense, any sense of how long the jury might deliberate on this one? Always a fool's errand to read jury, jurors. But, uh, Lana, I think there are a couple of things that could perhaps draw this out. Because it does seem uh, he is so notorious as the leader of the Sinaloa cartel that the jury couldn't help but convict. And that may well be true. And after all, the prosecution offered more than 50 witnesses over uh, 11 weeks. And the defense testimony, one witness, 30 minutes. So the defense really didn't even put up much of a, a fight except to try and discredit all the government witnesses. Uh, there could be jurors who are scared. They're kept anonymous uh, for their safety. And they may feel like internally they don't want to be responsible for convicting someone that they've just heard for the last three months is, is so brutal. Uh, there are also, it, it just the, the reality of it is the, the jury form is quite complicated. There are 10 separate counts. Each of those counts has underlying crimes that the jury must decide whether the prosecution proved or did not prove. And so just going through the facts of the case and, and deliberating together could take some time. Thank you, Aaron Katursky. I know you're going to stay on top of all of it and bring us the very interesting details. 
bananas, jalapenos, all filled with drugs and every other piece of the El Chapo puzzle as it unfolds. Thank you, Erin. Now we're going to go to Colorado and a new development in the case of missing mom, Kelsey Barrett. Uh, ABC's Clayton Sandell is there. And Clayton, you have some new information about why Kelsey's cell phone pinged in Idaho. Can you tell us about it? Hey, Lana. Yeah, let me start with the headlines here. So this 32-year-old nurse from uh, Twin Falls, Idaho, by the name of Crystal Lee, is expected to be in court here in a Colorado courtroom on Friday. And her family members tell us that she will plead guilty to uh, her involvement in this case, the Kelsey Barrett case. And I'll take you back. You remember Kelsey Barrett was the missing, is the mom and flight instructor who's been missing since Thanksgiving Day. Uh, her fiance, Patrick Frazee, is sitting in jail right now, charged with her murder. Now, her body has not been found, but talking about that cell phone ping, three days after Kelsey Barrett went missing, her cell phone signal was detected in Idaho. And what law enforcement authorities have been telling us is that Crystal Lee is suspected of taking that cell phone to Idaho uh, with the intent of trying to get rid of it. So that is her involvement in this case that we know for now. We may learn more. Her involvement may be more extensive than that. Um, that will all come out. We still haven't seen a lot of the court documents in this case because the case is actually sealed. So prosecutors are not even confirming that this plea deal is happening, uh, but they will confirm that she's going to be in court on Friday. And she is now cooperating, obviously. Uh, is there any sense that, uh, that she has a good defense um, for why she was helping out in this case? You know, at this point, we don't know much from official sources, but in talking to her family members, one of the things that Crystal Lee has apparently told them is that, well, first of all, let me back up a little bit and talk about their relationship. They apparently knew each other for decades, met each other around high school, uh, have been in touch over the years. We're not sure exactly the nature of their relationship uh, lately, uh, but what we are told is that, uh, is that Crystal Lee has told her family that she only helped Patrick Frazee after the fact because he threatened to kill her. So we'll see if authorities agree with that, uh, with that part of the story uh, when all of these court documents are eventually unsealed, Lana. Such an awful, awful case, Clayton, and we can't forget that little baby girl uh, who Kelsey left behind. Thank you so much. We're going to now turn to a story of greater optimism and hope as Jesse Smollett, the Empire star, triumphantly returned to the stage. He said that he would not be beaten down and he thinks that justice will come in the uh, attackers that shouted homophobic slurs and, uh, and racist slurs at him. Let's hear a little bit from his concert over the weekend. Really, uh, really bringing, uh, bringing all of his talented gifts to the audience there. And uh, ABC's Alex Perez has been following this case there in Chicago. Alex, what's the latest? What are, what are police saying and what is Jesse saying to his fans? 
Hey, Lana, well, you know, still no arrest in this case. We're in Chicago's uh, Streeterville neighborhood. It was in this neighborhood where Jesse reported that crime. Now, there are cameras everywhere, every square inch of this neighborhood. There are a lot of businesses here, also a big residential area, as you can see. And authorities say at this point, it does not appear that that attack was captured on any of the cameras. They're still searching, reviewing hours and hours of video, looking for any possibility of that. But as you mentioned, this is the first time we're hearing Jesse speak publicly about what happened to him back on January 29th. He was performing in West Hollywood. Let's take a quick listen to what he told some of the people in the audience this weekend. The most important thing that I can say is just to keep it simple and just say thank you so much and that um, I'm okay. I was bruised, but my ribs were not cracked. They were not broken. Both my doctors in LA and Chicago cleared me to perform, but said to take care, obviously. And above all, I fought the back. So many questions. So as you heard there, Jesse is resilient. Yeah, Lana, he, a lot of questions. He's resilient. Uh, he says he fought back, and he says he does expect that justice will be served in this case, but he was admittedly saying this was an emotional, emotional time for him and his family. Lana? Absolutely, Alex. And, uh, and I was starting to say that, that there are still questions about who those two gentlemen uh, are in that surveillance tape. Can you tell us anything more about that? Yeah, still a lot of things we just don't know about this case. Authorities released that surveillance image. It's a still picture that shows two people walking, but it, it's a grainy picture, and really it just looks like two silhouettes. And authorities released that last week, and at this point they still have not gotten any tips. They're no closer to identifying, as far as we know, who those two people in that picture are. And they say those people may just be witnesses to what happened. That's why they're trying to get a hold of them. We still don't really know anything about who the actual suspects in this case may have been. Uh, Authorities tell us they have about a dozen detectives working this case. Like I said, this is a busy area, a lot of people. So if something happened here, as it appears it did, they want to know who's responsible and get those people off of the streets. Thanks for staying on top of all of it, uh, Alex. And we're now going to go to uh, California. Southern California has been absolutely drenched in torrential rainfalls. And ABC's Will Carr is bringing us the very latest from Malibu. Good morning, Lana. We've had so many storms sweep through California recently that every time it rains, there is a new danger. We saw this boulder come crashing down that hillside. You can see that this is the size of a car. If this had happened during the middle of the day when cars were driving up and down this highway, it would have been a lot more dangerous. As of now, this highway is still shut down. Over the weekend, we saw a sinkhole open up and swallow a front end loader. We also saw rain-soaked conditions on I-5, a first responder was killed driving to try to help people who were in an accident there. And as crews are going to come and try to start cleaning this up, they're not going to be able to do that before the next storm system sweeps through. We're expecting a lot more rain and snow across California through Tuesday. Lana. Some really remarkable images thanks to ABC's Will Carr. And for the rest of weather, we of course go to Ginger Z. Lana, thank you. What a stormy weekend out in the West. And then we start in California where we had the debris flows. Uh, that was all, you know, tons of rain. And even you don't need a lot of rain to get something like this if you have a burn scar going. But L.A. County had up to a half foot of rainfall. Let me go ahead and bring you through what else happened. So you add a little elevation and you make it a frozen precipitation in the way of snow. Mammoth Mountain, can you imagine walking out the door and seeing that? June Mountain actually had 96 inches of snow. Interstate 80 and 50 had to be closed for a time up in the Sierra. Now under blizzard warnings. 
Um, you're definitely going to need the chains because the snow's not done. Either is the rain, so you still have flash flood watches. You still have winter storm warnings in the mountains outside of Cal uh, Los Angeles and San Diego, and ice storm warnings from that first storm all the way up into the northern plains and Great Lakes. So how does it all time out? By Wednesday, we'll finally see some drying, but up until then, you could see another up to three feet of snow in some of the peaks in the Sierra. And down at the coast, up to two inches of rain. So anywhere that's been already kind of moved by the rain over the weekend, it could be saturated and easily create more mudslides. So we're watching for that. And then we're also watching the warmth. So this is in Man Minnesota. That is a weather balloon, right? It's called a radio sound. And one of the weather service uh, folks taking it out with a little bit of a joke here because it was 39 degrees, but in relationship to the sub 39 degrees likely that they were very, very, you know, just last week. It's what it feels like. We all feel like this when it starts to warm up after such an awful, awful frigid week. Now we're spring-like and for days. Look at Cincinnati up into the 60s by the midweek. New York City close to 60 on Tuesday. And even when we drop, we're only in the 40s. It all feels tropical at this point, doesn't it, Lana? It does, Ginger. Thank you. I love the great weather. Thanks for watching the debrief on ABC News Live. I'm Lana Zak. We hope you're going to remember to tune in to the briefing room, our political show at 3.30. And also check out World News Prime at 8 o'clock p.m. Of course, remember to download the ABC News app. I'm Lana Zak. Thanks so much for tuning in.